The following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. As you can see from the meditation, relaxing the body, the heart, and the mind, that consciousness is very dynamic, the ability to perceive. And the purpose of these studies is precisely to expand that perception of active watchfulness in our daily life. But more importantly, we seek to understand. These are two faculties of consciousness, observation, comprehension. Without a thorough understanding of these qualities, these two, it is impossible to really know ourselves in the full depths of our potential. Meditation is a state of being. And what we want is to awaken the ability to perceive ourselves in a deep way, and more importantly, to understand why we suffer. Everything we do is to comprehend the roots of pain so that by understanding them, by working practically on those roots, we change our life. Our circumstances heal, problems are resolved, conflicts are ended. Meditation is the way to understand and experience our true nature. As we see here, the Buddha looking at a horizon of a galaxy in the Milky Way. Buddhadatu means seed of the Buddha. And Buddha means awakened one to perceive from the Sanskrit bud, signifying cognizance, awareness, perception. Our true nature is very beautiful, very profound, very wise. However, our Buddha nature is trapped. Our ability to see life clearly as it is, is conditioned. We have elements like pride, anger, fear, lust, hatred, gluttony, 
whatever sins or defects religions speak of, we have that in abundance. And these elements trap the beauty of what we are and what we can become. We want to understand these blockages in the psyche because egotism, hatred, these elements keep us trapped, keep us in pain. By directly looking at our own mind, activating the consciousness, some religions call soul, we are going to understand the cage. And by understanding the cage of how pride works, fear works, we can break it. Meditation is a state of being. Meditation is precisely the quality of looking. And we're going to talk about the discipline itself, how to attain it. According to the writings of Samalan Vior, the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, but also Blavatsky's voice of the silence. We see here, see here an image of a man whose mind is clouded, and this directly represents our state of being. Our mind, our thoughts are like clouds. If you've watched in that meditation practice at the state of the mind, we have associative thoughts, memories, daydreams, fantasies. These emerge on the screen of our mind and then they sustain and they pass. If we are looking, if we're watching, the consciousness, the free part of us that can truly change and produce a great transformation has to be activated, has to be able to watch and look at the process. If we don't look, we just think that we're thinking, we feel what we feel, and we do what we do. We don't see that there is a constant flux of a pattern of reactions, states, which are constantly changing in accordance with the circumstances. And the traditional practice of meditation is essential because we can shut down the senses and just look at the contents of the mind without being distracted. But obviously there's a problem that we all face as we attempt this type of exercise. We see that we think too much. The mind chatters. The mind wanders. We're never present looking at what we're doing, where we are, how we got here. And this obscures the knowledge that we need to change. If the mind is obscured, we cannot see the heavens of potential, higher states of consciousness, which we can access when we meditate and when we put thought aside, when we no longer think. This is why Samal and Vior in The Perfect Matrimony explained that Gnostic must first attain the ability to stop the course of his thoughts, the capacity to not think. Indeed, only the one who achieves this, that capacity will hear the voice of the silence. When the mind is put aside, the heart awakens. And then we can hear through intuition 
the voice of God or the being, divinity, speaking through us and telling us this is right, this is wrong. Hunches, inclinations, inquietings. When the mind is calm, in synthesis, we learn to focus. So consciousness has many aspects. It is one thing to watch or observe, to focus on one thing. It's also another state to be aware. So awareness is of our surroundings, but also awareness could be of the self. When we learn to not think so much, put the mind aside, watch it, look at it like it is a separate entity, we learn to focus attention. Attention is self-directed. It's to focus on one thing. It's like a flashlight. You focus on one thing, all your attention goes to that. Awareness is more spatial, surroundings, environment. We need both qualities. We have to be aware of our surroundings in life. We get to an accident, we get hurt, we get into situations we should not. And then attention is the ability to look at one thing without wavering, without getting distracted, without losing your focus. That only occurs when the mind settles, when thoughts aren't so predominant. The mind is like a jar filled with water, sediment, stones, dirt. If we constantly shake the contents, we don't see. But if you are at peace, if you watch and let the mind calm, you see layers. That's when you can see the structure of the psyche so that you can interpret what is going on. And then you can get the stones out, get the dirt out, clean the water, make it pure, make it unsullied. So concentration is attention. Focus on one thing, don't forget. We need this in order to access the real state of meditation. Concentration is not meditation. It's the ability to focus on one thing so that without being distracted, we can see and get the information we want or whatever we're meditating on, whether it's the mind, whether it's the meaning of a scripture, whether it's an event in our day. When the Gnostic disciple attains the capacity to not think, then he must learn to concentrate his thoughts on only one thing. This is Salman Vior from The Perfect Matrimony. We included an image of a lamp because this perfectly represents the state of consciousness we need to develop. The fire is lit and fire produces light. Light is perception. It is the ability to see. But if there is no protection, if there is no hermetic seal around the light, wind can distract, snuff out the flame, make it waver, make it unclear. That hermetic seal is watchfulness, watching our mind, observing our mind, so that we don't lose the state of remembrance, of being attentive in all moments of life. The voice of the silence emphasizes that we must not be distracted 
We must learn to pay attention in all moments of life. And that we have to protect light, watchfulness. We must not be invested in the senses. Meaning, you're watching, you're observing, you're being aware of your environment, you're observing your mind, you're observing yourself. And you don't give your energy to this situation, to this problem, to this conflict, to this person. You have a sense of separation. You're sealed. You're like a hermit. You're in solitude, even amongst people. It's a psychological state. And in that way, no matter how attractive life is, how pleasant it is, how unpleasant it is, you maintain temperance. You are serene. You are calm. Doesn't mean that you don't feel or don't think. It means that you're watching all of it and you're observing. You're gathering data. You're calm. Before the soul can hear, the image, man, has to become as deaf to roarings as to whispers, to cries of bellowing elephants as to the silvery buzzing of the golden firefly. No matter how intense the impressions of life are, we have to be patient, watch, observe. No matter how subtle a distraction might be, or how obvious, how intense, we watch. It is in this way that we remember our true nature, who is divinity. We call it the being. We call it the innermost. Some people call it God. And so this scripture teaches remembrance of the divine, the sacred, the consciousness that knows how to look and to understand the depth of any phenomenon. Remembrance is a state in which we don't forget we're paying attention, that we're here and now. We're observing the body, our mind, our heart, our states. In this way, by that constant watchfulness and the remembrance of the state of different superior qualities like compassion, patience, love, we remember the state of divinity. This is why Blavatsky wrote in The Voice of the Silence, before the soul can comprehend and may remember, she must unto the silent speaker be united, just as the form to which the clay is modeled is first united with the potter's mind. That silent speaker is the being, the divine, who speaks through intuitions in the heart about how to act in life, what to do. We have a problem. We want to think it through. The mind plans, orchestrates, debates, but it doesn't understand what to do. It's a different quality. Intuition in the heart, knowing directly without having to think is a superior quality. In fact, the heart can guide the mind in appropriate behavior so that we don't have conflicts, we don't struggle. This is what it means to be united with a potter's mind. Because divinity, our true spiritual nature, guides us through hunches and inquietudes, the quality of our heart. But we have to learn to put the mind aside, as we've been saying. As we develop that state, 
we enter what is actual meditation. Meditation, as we said, is a state of being. It's a state of perception, a way of knowing. And as we sit to first silence the mind, relax, calm the heart, concentrate on one thing without being distracted, suddenly, as we're entering a state of sleepfulness, the threshold between waking and dreaming, suddenly, images emerge. You may see a scene like in a dream, a vision. You might see a landscape, people, situations, circumstances. It's a new state of consciousness. And the experience can end as quickly as it emerges. Suddenly we get shocked. We wake up. We found that we suddenly entered the dreaming state in which we're proceeding with new senses. That sense is called imagination. Doesn't mean fantasy, something that's not real. Obviously, fantasy, daydreams, negative thoughts are perceptions, but of the negative qualities of ourselves. They're not the consciousness. There is the superior quality of seeing without reacting. And that's the difference. Positive imagination, negative imagination. Negative imagination just happens. You may have anger, resentment, and then you fantasize, daydream about getting revenge. Obviously, that's not what we're talking about. Superior imagination is when the mind is still, the heart is still, and then in the lake of the consciousness, images from the divine enter and we experience the truth. That is real meditation. But it is a different quality from our common states, which is why we have to train in developing that persistently. Finally, the last step is contemplation. It's one thing to perceive through your imagination superior states of experiences. Sometimes we call them astral projections, higher states of being, awakened dreams, lucid dreams. The fourth state refers to when the consciousness is totally free of conditions and in turn can reunite the experience divinity. This can only occur when there is no self, there is no fear, no pride, no anger, no lust, no vanity. We have to put self at the door, leave it there. And the consciousness stripped of all falsehood can unite like a spark to a flame, the real state of the truth. People call God, divinity, the being, consciousness. We call that samadhi. It means ecstasy. Ecstasy from the Latin extatuo means to stand outside yourself in which your old ways of being are gone and there is only the truth. The fourth step is, is contemplation, ecstasy or samadhi. 
This is the state of Truria, perfect clairvoyance. So the term clairvoyance comes from French. Clairvoyance, which means clear vision. This is just a fancy term for imagination. Looking, observing, seeing non-physical imagery. It is a type of seeing that is not clouded or obscured. And this is why when we study meditation, we have to study not only just concentration, awareness, attention, or watchfulness, mindfulness. We have to understand the nature or the qualities of seeing, of imagination, whether it's positive or negative. Real, true, perfect imagination is the ability to focus on one thing, to see and identify an object, quality of mind, and experience, to see it for what it is without any type of filter. It's like seeing through, again, back to the analogy of the jar. When the jar of our mind with its sediment and rocks is settled, you can see the layers when you're calm. Real imagination is like pure water. It reflects. It has no inherent substance or coloration of its own. It just reflects the heavens, the truth. This is why Samal Vior, in his book on sexology, the basis of endocrinology and criminology, stated, for the wise, to imagine is to see. Imagination is the translucence of the soul. Translucence is the key word. No dirt, no muddy, no mud, no impurity. Mind, consciousness, clean. No anger, no hatred, no fear. It is awake. It is brilliant. It has a luminous character. It is patient. It is kind. It is forbearing. It knows how to look at any distressful situation and not to be identified or to be overwhelmed by it, to feel maybe reactions or conflicts. You can see without being disturbed, without being frustrated. <clears throat> this is the clearness of the soul, which we develop through exercises of imagination. Because in the beginning, obviously our imagination <clears throat> to take an image and try to see it in your mind is difficult. So with imagination exercises, we want to be able to see in our mind. If I tell you to imagine an apple, you can see it, right? But it may not have color and depth. We may not be able to sustain it, to hold on to it, to focus. But that can develop with practice. We take an object, we imagine it, we try to see it, sustain it. Concentration, you focus on that object you want to see, you develop it in your imagination. You try to perceive it in your mind, hold it there. That ability to focus and to see it is what expands consciousness. Concentration and imagination open the doorway to knowing the heights of divinity as we see in the tree of life. Study of Kabbalah, the map of our multidimensional being. So the voice of the silence that Blavatsky explains emphasizes 
these points. We want to understand our true nature, our inner spirit, what we call God, the being. But to do that, as we emphasize, we have to be calm of mind, have a passive intellect, not be thinking all the time, worrying in the heart, agitating the body. This is why this scripture states, the pupil must regain the child state he has lost ere the first sound can fall upon his ear. That state of watchfulness, of observation, of remembrance of self is a state of innocence, purity of mind. We're watching ourselves, we're mindful, and we don't assume anything. We just look. We don't have to think about, I am this person with this appearance, this name, this culture, this, these tastes, this race, this religion. We put that aside. We watch like we don't know. And that active looking gives you new information about who we really are. It's a state of innocence, purity, novelty. And so by activating that and remembering that state of remembrance or patience, observation, we get insights from our inner master. Our inner divinity is the true master, the real guru, the real teacher, who can guide us, whether in meditation or dreams, about how to live our lives more effectively. The light from the one master, the one unfading golden light of spirit, shoots its effulgent beams on the disciple from the very first. Its rays thread through the thick, dark clouds of matter. That matter is our mind. It is the density of the intellect. It is the heaviness of negative emotion. That jar with its contents of sediment and impurity keeps us in darkness, not knowing why we suffer and how to change, what we can do. The mind is a form of matter, but not physical matter. It's a form of energy. It's a form of perception, but not physical. It is related to what we call the tree of life. This map of the universe outside of us, but also the universe inside. And these 10 spheres represent in its verticality states of matter, energy, and perception from the most spiritual and divine above, the most rare subtle and pure, to the most dense. We're in the bottom sphere of Malkut, which in Hebrew means kingdom. It's our body. But likewise, these higher states can relate to our emotions and our mind, which are a form of matter, which we experience when we dream, which are different states of dimensionality and experience. So that light from divinity seeks to awaken us from the higher regions. It enters down into our psyche, but becomes obscured when our mind and heart and our body are not suitable vehicles. Because we have, as we said, many elements that are contrary. The way that we experience and receive that direct perception is again by paying attention. Now here, now there, these rays illuminate like sun sparks, light, the earth through the thick foliage of the jungle growth. 
But O disciple, unless the flesh is passive, head cool, the soul is firm and pure as a flaming diamond. The radiance will not reach the chamber. Its sunlight will not warm the heart. Nor will the mystic sounds of the Akashic Heights reach the ear, however eager at the initial stage. The mind must be calm. The consciousness must be strong, must be elaborated, strengthened. And in that way, we can have mystical experiences, visions and dreams, visions and meditation. We can hear mystical sounds in our meditations. We see and perceive things, but not with physical senses, spiritual senses. But we have to prepare our heart. As we see here with the sacred image of Jesus, who with the thorns of his will and enduring the pain of hardship in life, awakens the flame of compassion and divine love. So what are the stages of meditation according to the voice of the silence? Yama Niyama, which is restraint and observance or restraint and precept. Yama Niyama relate to how we conduct our consciousness in daily life, in our jobs, in our careers, with our families, with our loved ones. How do we behave? What do we do in relation to our coworkers, our friends? Do we give in to anger, hatred, passion? Are we filled with fear? Resentment. Do we create suffering in our life, in our interactions with people? Or do we bind communities? Do we join together people? Do we inspire others? Do we help them? These rules, restraint and observances, refer to psychological ways of being. Restraint means you're in a difficult situation, maybe at work. You feel anger as you're watching yourself, observing yourself. And you look to the source. You try to find and examine, why am I angry at this person? Why do I have resentment to this individual? And restraint is while looking at it, you don't feed that anger. You don't give it what it wants. Physically, you, restraint is one thing to not speak words of aggression, but more importantly, it's a state of mind. Even if we don't say anything, we may have resentment in our heart and in our thoughts. We have to restrain even that in the most subtle depths of our being. It's good, obviously, like religions teach, do not lie, do not steal, do not kill, do not take intoxicants. Do not lust, do not covet. These things on a physical level help keep societies bound together and functioning. But more importantly, these are mental precepts. These are psychological states of being, restraining in your mind and not wishing harm on anyone, not stealing people's time 
your energy, your attention. And not harboring resentment. Niyama means precept. Be compassionate. Love thy neighbor. Understand others. Sacrifice. Generosity. The voice of the silence hints at these two. Unless thou hearest, thou canst not see. Unless thou seest, thou canst not hear. To hear and see this is the second stage. So in the beginning of any meditative study, we hear about the need to work on pride, anger, negative emotions, fear, elements which create uh, suffering for ourselves and for others, behaviors which are harmful. We hear this knowledge and we receive it so that by practicing it, we can see in ourselves the truth of this. But also, if we don't see from our practical life how these precepts, these ethical stipulations are necessary, we won't understand the teaching, whether of any religion. We call this ethical discipline. Ethics help to settle the mind so that by seeing in ourselves what compassion is, what patience is, we learn to hear the voice of the silence, our inner divinity. These are probably the most difficult aspects of meditation to master. Ethics, being a good person. Because if we're filled with all sorts of negativity, we can't focus and meditate. We're too agitated. We're in too much pain. We feel remorse. We've hurt someone. We've hurt ourselves. We feel shame. We feel remorse. We cannot see clearly or understand the root of our problem if we invest all our energy in conditions of mind. But once we learn to settle the psyche, we learn to begin preparing for actual meditation. So if we're calm of mind and heart, if we enact a strong ethical discipline in our lives, we learn to calm the body. The body becomes a receptive vehicle to sit still for an hour, two hours, however long we need, so that we can shut, us, shut the senses down and become more aware of our mind. Asana is posture. How we sit. You don't need to enter meditation in full lotus, half lotus. Instead, you can adopt any posture. You can even be lying down. If you're able to maintain your attention, your awareness, but you're able to relax. When your body is calm, you can sit in the style of Maitreya Buddha in an upright chair. You're able to, again, relax the body, put it in its place, and forget about it. You want to forget the body. Meditation is not about struggling with the body. That's why in the beginning, we need a posture that's conducive to our practice. You can get drowsy, but also pay attention. You don't forget what you're doing. If you fall asleep, you're too comfortable. Choose another posture. And then when the body is calm and settled, the spine is relaxed, you have no tension in yourself, you can begin to work with energy. Now, the important thing with pranayama, with energy work, is that the consciousness needs fuel. So going back to the image of a lantern with the lamp and the fire, 
the light cannot exist without fire. If we don't have energy in our mind, our heart, our body, because we waste it in negative ways of being, we won't be able to have the strength of consciousness to work. No fuel in the car, no light, you can't see. Now, that's why ethics are essential. Don't give your energy to the mind, to ego, selfishness, because that energy we need to restrain and take and give to our real conscious nature. So pranayama means to yoke energy, to harness energy. Prana, which is the life force of our body. We have it in the air that we breathe, but also in our physical body through our energies, our creative energies. Yama means to restrain. And pranayama is traditionally known as breath work. You can use interchangeable nostril breathing. You can visualize energy circulating from the base of the spine to the mind and then to the heart. You work with these energetic channels in the body, but also our spiritual internal psyche as well. So that when those energies are circulating in you, you have a connection, you have power. You're able to pay attention and concentrate and focus and not get distracted. This is why the voice of the silence states, when the disciple sees and hears, and when he smells and tastes, eyes closed, ears shut, with mouth and nostrils stopped, when the four senses blend and are ready to pass into the fifth, that of the inner touch, then into the stage of the fourth, he hath passed on. So what, are, what does it mean to see and hear, smell and taste, with eyes closed and ears shut? These are psychological senses. Does it refer to sensations in the body? It refers to subtle energies which flow through us as we've relaxed. That's why we have to be calm of body. When the body is calm, you can start to sense energy. You can direct it willingly to your purpose. And therefore the four senses blend, meaning your inner psyche, your senses of the spirit are integrated. You're not distracted. Everything is together. It's focusing on one thing. You're disciplined. And that inner touch is, again, the sense of energy in the body, inner experience. We want to harness those winds in ourselves, those vital forces, the air in our lungs, so that we empower the consciousness. This is what leads to pratyahara, which means withdrawal of the senses. And then dharana, which is real concentration. Pratyahara means withdrawal or suspension of senses. So as we're doing pranayama, or you can work with a mantra, a sacred sound to activate energies in the body, circulate them. You also take your attention away from the senses. You withdraw them. Your senses suspend. They calm. And you devote all your energy and attention to your practice. To not be distracted by what's going on in the neighbors across the hall, someone on the street yelling. In Chicago, we have a lot of uh, distractions, a lot of things that can pull us away. Pratyahara is taking everything in your consciousness and pulling it in like a turtle in a shell. You forget everything but the practice. The body is suspended, it's calm. 
if your senses and your mind is thinking about what's going on outside to that distraction or disturbance across the hall, we're not meditating. We're not even in pratyahara because the mind is going elsewhere. Bring it all in. Be situated, be anchored, be calm. In this fifth stage, it's, a, it's described in the voice of the silence like you're slaying your thoughts. It doesn't mean literally like you become violent with the mind, like you're aggressive or you're exerting force. Instead, it means to put aside the external world, bring it all in. It's kind of spiritual war, but not of mental force and violence. And in the fifth, O slayer of thy thoughts, all these again have to be killed beyond reanimation. Again, if the thoughts are elsewhere, we can't concentrate. In this way, your thoughts don't get reanimated. You don't get distracted again if you're really focused within. If you're doing the pranayama, and especially that energy can help you withdraw from the senses. You go completely inside, like you're going into a temple. That temple is your heart your psychology, and we want divinity to officiate. But this is how we get there. Withhold thy mind from all external objects, all external sights. Withhold internal images, lest on thy soul light a dark shadow they should cast. Thou art now in dharana, the sixth stage, concentration. This is very interesting. Withhold thy mind from all external objects. He explained this, all external sights. They also state, the scripture states, withhold internal images. So you may notice as you're going inside of yourself, suddenly you see images from your own mind. Could be a memory from the day, could be something negative, like a distressful image, a disturbing thought, something profoundly conditioned and harmful. We have to withhold those types of images. That's, again, negative imagination. It's the perception of are defects. And these types of images are not controlled. We don't have control over them in the beginning. But you learn, not be distracted by those. Withhold those negative images. Do not let those shadows, that false type of light, cloud your vision. Put them aside. If you start to wander in those types of perceptions, just bring yourself back. Relax. Remember your breath. Focus within again. Let it subside and it will pass. In this way, we enter concentration when we can, by not being distracted by anything, we can now give our full attention to whatever we want to meditate on. This is where real meditation begins. Real meditation is when, again, you're so concentrated that you don't forget what you're doing. There are stages of this. As you see on this poster in the back, which is available as a poster, but also it's visible in every single Tibetan Buddhist monastery in the world. It is called the Nine Stages of Meditative Concentration. It's a very beautiful graphic, very deep, very profound. It depicts states of concentration from the most basic below, from the very beginnings of a wild mind to the top, which is a fully liberated mind. You see an elephant running away from a monk. That elephant is the mind, our thoughts, our distractions, the pains in the body, the body that wants to shift and move when we're 
sitting to practice. These are all instigated by the density of the psyche, our conditions. But as you learn to, again and again, concentrate and, and practice concentration exercises, you get better. In the beginning of this glyph, you see the monk doesn't have a control of the elephant, but with the fire of his energy, his enthusiasm, his zeal, his inspiration, he finally manages up this winding path to get control of the elephant and to lead it. That represents a mind that's fully under control and also no longer impure. See, the dark color is the density of a negative emotion and thought. But at the top of perfect concentration, the elephant obeys. The body obeys. We're no longer shifting in our chairs, but and the mind obeys us and we have perfect control. It's not exertion. It's a state of serenity. But we develop it with patience. And when you're able to, like in that Buddhist glyph, to calm the mind in its perfect, equi uh, perfect state of equipoise, suddenly you see that this monk is flying across a rainbow bridge. He's entering higher states of consciousness, which is real meditation. So in this way, as the voice of the silence teaches, we enter into the experience of the divine. This is where we really can know ourselves. Everything else is preliminary. The language here is very dense. There's some abstract symbols that we're going to connect with to the Kabbalah, the tree of life, the Jewish mystical tradition, because they can dovetail our understandings of the scripture. When thou hast passed into the seventh, O happy one, thou shalt perceive no more the sacred three, for thou shalt have become that three thyself, thyself and mind, like twins upon a line. The star, which is thy goal, burns overhead. The three that dwell in glory and bliss ineffable, now in the world of Maya have lost their names. They have become one star, the fire that burns but scorches not, that fire, which is the opadi of the flame. And this, O yogi of success, is what men call dhyana, the right precursor of samadhi. Numerology is sacred. The Jewish mystical tradition, this Kabbalistic tree of life, represents states of being and dimensions. It also relates to numerology because you have 10 spheres. Kabbalah means in Hebrew, tradition. It also can mean from the root word kabel, to receive. It is knowledge that we receive in meditation. These are mystical experiences. So what is that three that the voice of the silence mentions? It's this top trinity which some religions have called Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, or in Hebrew, Keter, Hukmah, Binah, Osiris, Oros, Isis. Different religions can be mapped on this glyph. They represent forces, states of being, pure states of consciousness. If you're really deep in meditation, you learn to access higher regions of being, not merely our thoughts and feelings or energy, or even our will, we go beyond to spirit, the heights of who we are. And beyond this top trinity is really the origin of all things. Some people call it the absolute. The Buddhists call it the illuminating void, the emptiness in which there is no self, but only pure divine being. There's no condition, there's no illusion. It is a state of happiness and liberation. That star which shines overhead, 
is uh, what we call the Ein Sof in Hebrew. So the Ein Sof is described in the Jewish mystical tradition as the synthesis of who we are, our real identity. It is like a star of light that shines in the void of abstract, absolute potential space. That star is our real being. And that Ain Sof is really the goal of meditation, to go to our root synthesis of who we are, what we are in our depth. These states of consciousness are a form of bliss. They are a form of happiness, which is sacred and eternal, the real identity of who we are. And we seek to access it through meditation to understand our true nature. And in this way, we enter what is called samadhi, divine experience, mystical experience. We put aside the terrestrial self and enter the spiritual self. And now thyself is lost in self, thyself unto thyself, merged in that self which, from which thou didst first radiate. Where is thy individuality, Lanu, disciple? Where the Lanu himself? It is the spark lost in the fire, the drop within the ocean, the ever-present ray become the all and the eternal radiance. And now, Lanu, thou art the doer and the witness, the radiator and the radiation, light and the sound, and the sound of the light. This language is very abstract, but very beautiful. Again, we included this image of the tree of life, because this is the map of uh, the universe, states of consciousness, ways of being. This glyph with its 10 spheres represents manifested existence. These are states that are in our universe, which are very profound or qualities that we can access here and now. But the source, which is the absolute, is a unmanifested reality. It is the cosmic space from which all existence and being emerges. It is like an ocean. It is a form of darkness to our senses, but it is real light to the spirit. It is light that it was never created, but eternal, beyond the universes, beyond even gods. And so with this type of mystical experience, the consciousness, like a spark, gets lost in the ocean or the flame, like a bonfire. And so the drop becomes the ocean. We no longer have an individual identity, but the identity of the being, which is pure and eternal. No individual self, but the cosmic consciousness, which is totally radiant and pure. And this is light in the sound, sound in the light. It's a form of perception, but also sound in the sense that it is the great word, which according to the Bible, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God, according to the book of John. The Gnostics call this truth, Christ, Christos the fire of divinity, who is an energy in a state of being that can manifest in any individual who is properly prepared. If you want to learn more about meditation, we highly recommend visiting Gloria and Publishing's website, studying a course called Meditation Essentials. It'll teach you all about 
especially this glyph in the back about the stages of serenity, how to concentrate, focus, begin your meditative discipline. We also have two courses on our website, Gnostic Meditation and Sufi Principles of Meditation, which go into a lot more detail about each step. So today we spoke in synthesis, but if you study these courses, you'll get a very practical guide into each stage of the way in terms of meditating, understanding ourselves. At this point, I invite you to ask questions. Sure. So at one point you mentioned that um, negative imagination, which you also call fantasy, is just something that kind of happens to us. I could see that in that, you know, maybe I get distracted and suddenly my mind is going into all these things that I'm worrying about, which I didn't willfully choose. Um, but I think also I can willingly choose to fantasize or imagine something negative as well. Um, so I, I feel like, is that correct, that it can be both voluntary and something that happens mechanically, unconsciously to us? And I also want to ask about positive imagination. I think that when I've entered higher states of meditation, that seems more to be something that just happens, not something where I'm saying, well, let me imagine this mystical place, and then I'm choosing that, but rather that I'm opening up the inner senses and relaxing, and then suddenly I see something unexpected. And how do we distinguish if this is something that's a negative imagination or a positive imagination? It has to do with relativity, where we're at in our practice. As we begin initially to develop concentration and to imagine, we try to focus on, say, take a candle, look at the flame, look at the object, close your eyes for however long you can. Try to imagine that image and sustain it. In the beginning of our practice, we find that it's difficult to project that image at will and to sustain it, especially to see color and depth. And oftentimes the mind will try to come in and correct will fantasize. No, this is what the candle should look like. It should look like this. It should look like that. And that often happens to us involuntarily in the beginning, especially as we're, we see it's involuntary because as we're trying to establish the initial degrees of imagination and concentration, we find that the mind interferes. As you're learning to watch yourself and as we observe the state of mind in our daily life and when we meditate, we find that a lot of things just happen to us. These are usually the contents of our own mind, our own psyche, which in trying to be kind and compassionate, we see anger and resentment and that it has its own forms of imagination, its own thoughts, its own desires, its own will. And that's an initial state of conflict for us in the beginning, especially because we see that we are not in command of our kingdom, which is Malkut in the tree of life the body, we're not even in control of our mind. And so that can be distressing, especially in the beginning, but with persistence, we overcome that. We become fully rounded as we practice and gain more experience. With experience, we begin to distinguish that there are superior states of consciousness which eventually come to us seemingly involuntarily. Now, there's a subtle nuance here. In order to develop the full capacity of our imagination, we have to know how to direct our will, take an image, sustain it. 
it's projective. In a sense, it's almost a masculine trait, masculine principle, a psychological state of will, like assertiveness. You're asserting in your mind, I'm going to imagine this image. I'm going to dedicate 15 minutes and hold that image in my mind. And then you deal with the involuntary distractions, which always constantly try to besiege you. With enough development to clearly see an image, hold it in your mind, see it for what it is. Suddenly you reach a threshold. You're no longer caught within the intellect. You learn to suddenly see beyond daydreams, fantasies. You start to experience higher visions, which come to you also seemingly involuntarily. They just come into our consciousness without us expecting it. In one sense, it is involuntary. But in another way, we have to use our willpower to get there. It's like the merging of heaven with earth on the horizon of potential, which we see represented in the tree of life. Calm the body, Malkut. Work with energy, Yasad, our vital forces. Hod, control your emotions. Mind, Netzach, control the intellect. And as we're concentrating, we work with Tiferet, which is willpower, the ability to focus on one thing. And at, at this point, when every part of ourselves has settled, new images emerge. And the way that we discriminate between the involuntary images of our own negativity and the real voluntary or seemingly involuntary images of heaven is learning to develop our intuition, to discriminate and to be patient. You may have an experience when you meditate in which you see something and you don't understand it. And that's normal, especially in the beginning, we're learning about ourselves. Suddenly you find that you're meditating, you're imagining something, a new image emerges, a new scene, something that seems out of the ordinary. And going back to the quote from the voice of the silence, it's like we become both a witness and a participant of a cosmic drama. It can happen like a vision or a dream in which you're suddenly in a role or you're watching yourself or seeing yourself, seeing other people, and these experiences come to you. In a sense, they're both, they might seem both involuntary, but to get to those higher visions, we have to stabilize the consciousness. So when do we switch from that masculine, assertive, projective state of consciousness where we're trying to use willpower to stabilize the consciousness, right? Yes. When do we switch then to a feminine state of consciousness where we're trying to receive images rather than project? That threshold is when you're, we're perfectly relaxed, fully concentrated. Then we can shift. Yeah, fully concentrated. So in a meditation, you might decide, I'm going to focus on the meaning of a scripture. We read a verse from whether it's the Bible, the Quran, the Buddhist sutras, one line or from Salman Vior's writings, and we want to understand its meaning. We can try to project an image, imagine what that verse means, hold it for a time, put the mind aside, don't think. And when we're no longer thinking, when we're just waiting, and when we don't expect it, when the mind is not interfering, suddenly insight, new vision, something related to the meditation will teach us about what we're trying to seek. But that only occurs when we don't get distracted, we're fully relaxed, the energies are in control, the mind and heart are calm. That's the baseline. Wait, are you saying then that that can't happen 
unless you're calmly meditating. Like the higher visions? Right. I, yes. Well, I, I, I've had a, an entirely, completely different experience throughout my life. And I think that the feminine energy is more receptive, right? Because we're receivers. And so the feminine energy is a little bit more open to that. And our intuition is already intact. And if you really focus on that, it's it's really contingent on the individual, obviously. But as a feminine receptive energy, you know, I mean, I've received images throughout my life. There are and levels. Intuition. Yeah. Yes. Levels, right? And those levels are mapped out in the tree of life. So we can have a spiritual experience in this physical body, but there's more. There's levels. And the access the deeper or to access the deeper states of higher visions, like in dreams, the body has to be calm. But we can receive hunches, insights. You can even receive an image in the mind while you're physically active. So to clarify my point, what I'm talking about is states of being which are very high and the most profound levels of experience. Physically, you may be at work talking with someone and suddenly you get an image in the mind related to what the person is doing, what they're thinking, how they're reacting to you, about how to behave properly with that person. And that gives us a sense of orientation. We can see through images even by physically being awake. The problem is that we tend to have so much conditioning that we don't see most of the time, unless we're training. And when we train, as the mind becomes more feminine and passive, the head cool, the heart like a flaming diamond, you combine the receptivity of mind with the willpower of the consciousness, concentration, attention. The union of those two create the third force, which is synthesis, the harmonious union of soul with spirit, the divine. And we can get images, of course, like through human interaction. That's very beautiful. We need that. Even more beautiful is as we train in meditation, we leave aside even more conditions of mind so that we can strip away the layers and see reality more and more as we access those states. So, yeah, degrees. Sure. Question about uh, pranayama and energy control. Um, so you, you spoke about, um, you know, you use the word control. And, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of wrap my mind around um, the control aspect of it because, it, you know, what I've experienced is when it seems like the more I try to control it, the more out of hand it becomes. And, um, and, and I guess I'm trying to understand more about that. Like, it seems like you know, surrender is the right approach and how to, how to do that. Control's a tricky thing in terms of the, the language itself. We often think of control as being forceful, aggressive, like you're trying to control someone or something. And that we need to dominate the body or control the body the way that the energies flow. Real control is with serenity, not exertion. 
doesn't come about through force. Real willpower is perfectly calm, serene, not disturbed. And as we're trying to control energy in the body, whether through pranayama, mantra, recitation, you may find that you start to, we have conflicts, especially in the beginning as we're trying to first conserve energy, elevate it up the spine to the mind, then to the heart. In a sense, as you activate fire or that energy, in the beginning, we start to kind of shake the contents of the jar because we're beginners learning to understand how the body works with this teaching, with these energies, how do you actually control them? You'll find with experience that you have more control when you're at perfect ease and not try, not agitated. I know some people, when they try pranayama or sacred uh, vocalizations or mantras, they have, maybe they're agitated. They're trying to do it forcefully. There's an exercise like hamsa pranayama in which you breathe deeply inward. You mentally pronounce the mantra ham, which is prolonged. And then you exhale vocally, sa, sa. You're taking the energies from the coccyx, coccyx to the mind and then to the heart. Some people do it with rapidity, really quickly, really forceful. Pranayama is calm. Real control is calm. We find this reflected even in social situations. When we're surrounded by people who maybe have a mob mentality, whether we're surrounded by violence or aggression, those situations can't control us if we are at perfect ease, if we're serene. And in a sense, we lose control when we have desire or we're clouded by desire, attachment. If we're not seeing things clearly, if we're agitated. Energy flows serenely like a river, not like a flood. And that's the difference between, we can say, purity in the energies and passion, right? I mean, it's a subtle distinction, but you will find that as you continue to practice and be patient, especially with adapting the body to pranayama, it's a new exercise, you'll find that especially those energetic currents in the spine start to get clean, get calm, get more pure. And then the energies flow more serenely and calmly. But the way to do it is a sense of devotion, perfect calm, serenity. And I know in the beginning, especially it could be hard with you know, seeing a lot of lust, especially a lot of passion and desire, which is pulling the energies or trying to take it for itself. But you um, don't overcome the lion by becoming uh, either frustrated or skeptical or doubtful or fearful. There's an image in the Eternal Tarot which perfectly depicts this. The Tarot cards, Arcanum 11, a beautiful woman the Divine Mother, the Sacred Feminine Hindu Goddess. We see also in this uh, chakra poster. In the card, she's holding open the jaws of a lion, which Samalan Vior says in this book, with Olympian serenity. Olympian, like a god. And the lion calms. That lion is the energy. If you're perfectly at ease, you can control the most tempestuous force and make it settle. But it's going to take time. 
Patience doesn't come overnight. Something that I, I've read a bunch of times, and you know, I've heard you say it, I've heard uh, Gloria say it is like after you you know raise the energy, then uh, you direct it to your heart. And I've been having this you know question for a while of like you know directing it, and I I also with that uh, part not too certain about the flow of it going then into the heart. It just doesn't seem to actually have that direction. It seems like it's from something like it it, it, it doesn't it like I guess what I'm trying to say is what I experience is it flows up and then out and then it seems like there's a different current that goes into the heart that I do feel, but not always, only when I'm focusing on it. And I was wondering if you could clarify that if there's any sort of uh, logistical logic. I know some people when they're practicing hamsa pranayama, especially they may have different sensations, not merely just physical, but psychological, where you sense like the energies in the beginning are untamed, like the elephant in the glyph of the Buddhist murals. And that energy does tend in most people to flow from inside to out. My recommendation is if you feel like you're stuck, like as you're trying to do this practice and you feel that like your energies are not going from the mind to the heart as you're elevating it upward, I would suggest don't even pay attention to whatever the thought is or the sensations of an energetic and psychic type. Don't get identified with sensations because the mind in itself is a tricky thing. We know the mind is in our current state, not objective. But we may not be sensing or seeing things clearly. If you're doing hamsa, I would pray. Practice is really effective as we pray to our inner divine mother, divine mother Kundalini, and ask her, you be the one who guide this energy. And just do the breathing, inhale, mental, mentally mantralize, ha. and relax, say, the heart. If you find that the imagination is, or your, your sense of the energies is a little out of whack, or maybe not flowing in the way you want, don't get distracted by that. Just ignore it, pray, my God, help me send these energies. And eventually you'll find that you will start to see more clearly what is actually going on. Because the mind and the body tend to be, um, like the image of the jar I mentioned, stirred up. And the more we relax, the more effective the pranayama becomes. But it just takes patience. Yeah, you may feel like the energy is going out of the head. It's like, well, you direct, redirect your attention. Oh, your mind, are you sensing or seeing the energy is going out of the head? Ignore it. Just relax. Do the mantra. And you'll find that imagination clarifies with the work of energy. It's like, wiping the, cleaning off a pair of glasses, which are muddied and, or a mirror that's rusted. But eventually with time, as you're polishing the mirror, you will see more. And then it'll, problem will go away, especially if you don't think about it or don't pay attention to it. You know, problems go away without 
trying to solve it. Like, oh, the energy is going out, but let it go. Ignore. Pray. Do the mantra. Your divine mother knows how to handle the energies. She is the wisdom of God. She is the eternal feminine who can command the lion of the creative energy. And with peace from Mount Olympus. Again, this tree of life is like a mountain symbolizing all religions. We can get help. We need her. So rely on her. Follow your intuition. Be patient with yourself and invoke her. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.